Hello and welcome to Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark. And I'm Charlene. And this week we're going to try something a little bit different. We have some multiple part episodes coming up for the Mistborn trilogy and the Magicians trilogy at some point. But this week we're going to try a two-part episode with Steven Universe, uh, the Steven Universe movie, and Steven Universe Future. So at some point we're going to take a break and then there'll be a second part the following week. Okay, spoiler warnings. We'll obviously be spoiling the plot of all of the Steven Universe stuff that we mentioned before. We'll drop any other specific spoiler warnings and any content warnings in right here. Hello! Light on the spoiler warnings this week. We have a couple of mentions from Onward based on our episode last week. Uh, Nothing that you wouldn't glean from the trailers if you've watched those. There's also a couple of references to things from the original trilogy of Star Wars, um, which if you know anything about popular culture, you probably know the spoilers that we mentioned. However, just in case, we did want to mention them here. And I don't think we have any content warnings, so yay! Some vague comments about body horror, I think, but that's about it. Okay, and back to the past. Welcome back! Okay, do you want to do the summary of work? Steven Universe and Steven Universe the movie and Steven Universe Future sort of combined form a larger like animated story that is basically a coming of age story about a boy named Steven Universe who is half human and half gem and gem is an alien race that are essentially like a gemstone with a sentient light body that forms around it around the gem. Anyway so it's he's the only gem hybrid ever, and he's sort of growing up and figuring out what that means, what he can do, and what his responsibility is as a member of that race that at one point tried to colonize the planet. It draws a lot of inspiration from Magical Girl anime and other coming-of-age type of stories. Yeah, and uh, the mother figure who's the gem is absent for various reasons, um, and a lot of it is centered around that question of who she was, and where that leaves Steven Universe. Um, There are a few extended universe sort of graphic novels and things. Uh, We're not going to be talking about those because we haven't read them. We've seen a few panels that people have shared, but that's about it. The main main through line is what we're talking about this week and next week. Okay, shall we get into it then? Sure. So we're going to be splitting these two episodes up by some sort of general themes. The theory, and we'll cut this out when I'm entirely wrong, uh, is that this week we're going to talk about some of the issues of identity and sort of the more personal level of things that are brought up in the show. And then next week we're going to talk about some of the more macro level things about the world it's set in, the universe that it's set in, (laughs) and some of the commentary on our society through that angle of things. Sounds good. We are justifying this being a two-episode theme because A, it is... Six seasons a movie and then another season, I think. Something like that. But the original number of seasons is weird because different broadcasting places split it up differently. And also because we've just been watching it together for a long time and it says a lot of new things that we think are worth examining a bit more in depth. But they might be two slightly shorter episodes. We'll see. We'll find out. It's going to be an adventure. So I think probably going to be the overarching theme, but we'll start off with just sort of talking about identity here. I think that's probably a good place to start. I mean, any coming-of-age story is going to be... It's somewhat centered on identity and like the protagonist sort of figuring out their identity. And that's definitely how the show starts. Yeah. So I think... And ends. Sorry. And ends. Yeah. So I think that, um, to my mind, it is kind of in three acts, with Steven Universe being one, the movie a second, and then future a third. Um, and not even just the movie. I think it's the Diamond Days arc that leads up to the movie. Okay. And sure. then and the movie being sort of this third act of like a crisis point. 
which is pretty, I mean, that's a storytelling structure thing all on its own, right? So Yeah, so um, in the first section you have Stephen, who is a child. I mean, it's one of those shows where it's been made over a series of years and it's technically a kid's show and it's sort of, you know, aimed at probably eight to ten-year-olds and then they sort of grow up with Stephen and by the time you get to Stephen Universe Future, I think the target audience is probably in their teens. So in those first few seasons it's aimed at that younger audience and there's sort of this absent mother figure that is very much deified by everyone and like oh they're wonderful and unquestionably good and these things and then the second act is sort of their question of well is that really true and sort of learning about those flaws learning about those issues and sort of coming to terms with who Stephen's mother was as a flawed individual and then the third act is him sort of trying to work out what his own identity is apart from that mother that has been defining him for so long as he was sort of like the gem that he has is his mother's gem and he has sort and his mother disappeared when he came to life there's the sort of question of is he his mother and he does get an answer to that of no eventually but it takes a while yeah and he's not really sure I, there's definitely a struggle in the beginning, that's probably very relatable to people whose parent died giving birth to them, of like, was that a good trade? Like, am I living up to the loss that brought me into existence? Which is a complicated thing. And at certain points in the show, you see that her closest friends who have been raising Stephen along with his father, who is human, didn't really understand... Stephen's nature either and also thought that because gems can reform around their gem in whatever form they want thought that he was just another version of his mom and like was it was like a game or like an act and then spend a lot of his childhood loving and raising him and and being you know loving parents but also grieving that this person that they were close with for literally thousands of years is gone and being constantly reminded that she's gone because they're raising her son. So I think that's an important dimension in that he literally is the reason that she's not there. And as you say, like, her gem that is what gave her life before is also what she gave up to give him life. I don't know if that made any sense. Yeah, I mean, it did to me having seen the show. If you've listened to this without having seen it, then... This could be an entertaining read. Uh, listen for you. Yeah, it might be a little esoteric if you haven't read or if you haven't watched the show. Then some of it's probably going to be weird and confusing. Some of it's weird and confusing if you have seen the show. That's why we enjoy it. True. <laughs> yeah, but he, so he, at the beginning, he only knows about her from stories. It's sort of like with Onward, with Ian. Stephen only knows about his mother through the eyes of other people, and. You know, the stories they've told about her and what they say about who she was. He has no direct experience of her um, until he finds a videotape she made for him. But even that's very limited and curated. And she made that on purpose. Like, it's not an unfiltered experience. Yeah. Um, and so what that results in is him getting this, as you say, like, sort of deified, like, a version of her that's really her on a pedestal. And over time, you start to see more and more of how sometimes she was very secretive or very elitist or very callous, manipulative, instrumentalizing of other people. The secrets yeah. that she kept and the lies that she told and eventually finds out that she wasn't, like, the person who she was when she became his mother was actually, like, 
the new identity she made after she left a previous version of herself yeah. behind. And, like, she wasn't who a lot of people thought she was. Yeah. So, just in case you haven't seen the show, like, she is introduced as Stephen's mother as Rose Quartz, who was the leader of the Rebellion. But it turns out that she was in disguise and was actually Pink Diamond, who's, like, one of the main rulers of... Of the, the ruling for Diamonds. And had sort of, like, rebutted her own people in that way. And she faked her death and... It was the whole thing. Like, she faked her death as Pink Diamond and yeah. ran off to live on Earth. So I think um, I think there's some complex stuff we can get into if we look background on a bit mm-hmm. with her and how she's portrayed in different ways. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how family is portrayed in the show. I think there's some important things there and some important messages for everyone. As I mentioned, this is one of those shows that it's technically a kid's show, but is also very much... For all ages, really. Yeah, it deals with a lot of very heavy topics in sort of a subtext where I think a child can watch it and will get some really healthy messaging from it. But at the same time, an adult can watch it and it's saying a lot to them as well. It's mm-hmm. kind of like Wally in that way. Yeah, um, I agree with that. So with the family stuff, like, Stephen has this mother figure that he's sort of semi-yearning after. Um, but he does also have his dad, Greg, who mm-hmm. is there, who's, who's an interesting character, uh, like hasn't has always been there for Stephen, but not necessarily in a strictly parental role like lives out of his van in a car wash and used to dream of being a rock star and that didn't quite pan out sort of character but then you have the the crystal gems who were the remaining part of the rebellion and had fought alongside rose quartz pearl garnet and amethyst well amethyst wasn't part of the rebellion Okay, yes, she came along later. Um, who have sort of taken on this sort of surrogate mother role slash aunts. It's kind of like he's being raised by three weird aunts. but Yeah, with Amethyst being almost more of like a cousin or a sister, like because Rose, Pearl, and Garnet sort of adopted Amethyst when she emerged very late after yeah. the war. So she's very young and they've sort of been raising her. And then Stephen comes along and so they're both pretty immature at least on the spectrum of their own individual development. She's sort of a rebellious teenager. Right. As And he's like the little brother that she plays with and messes with sometimes. I take issue with your saying that Greg has not really been there for Steven as a parent because through the course of the show, it does kind of seem because of we're open on him living with the gems and like only like visiting and spending time with Greg as like a separate thing that... The gems are the ones primarily parenting him. But later on, it comes out that Greg was the one who took care of Stephen when he was very young. Like, during the period of time when he couldn't take care of himself, when he wasn't self-sufficient, couldn't feed himself, couldn't clean himself, etc. Greg took care of him then, because the gems had no idea how to deal with that. Like, they had very limited understanding of organic life forms in general. And so it's really only once he's sort of at that middle childhood stage where he's a little bit more autonomous that they that he's living with them and they're they're taking care of him which seems more to be because his gem powers are starting to emerge more and greg felt it was better for him to be with the gems because he felt they could better handle that stuff yeah that's um that's a fair point i was thinking it very much within like the where the show opens Mm -hmm. side of greg where it is like he's the guy that Stephen goes and sees from time to time. But you're right, he, he does have a stronger role. And as the show goes on, he takes on more and more of a role in Stephen's life as, like, the emotional grounding point. And it very much comes out that, like, the gems sort of pushed him out of the parental role yeah. over time. Like, they didn't really want him 
to be as involved, they weren't as close to him, and I think they in some ways blamed him for taking Rose away from them in a way that they wouldn't really allow themselves to blame Stephen. And so I think that had a lot to do with it too, that he sort of felt like he was he was being sidelined and Stephen needed them more than he needed Greg. Yeah. Um, but once they mend those relationships over time, that stops being as much of a thing. And particularly with Pearl. Right, particularly um, Who with Pearl. had a sort of, not a romantic relationship with Rose Quartz, but wanted one. It's unclear. Like, it seems like it might have been romantic at one point, but they definitely weren't on the same page as far as who they were to each other. Pearl was definitely a lot more attached to Rose than, and more exclusively attached to Rose than Rose was to Pearl. And so they at least were not clear with each other as to those expectations. Like, Pearl sort of expected Rose to just always sort of rubber band back to her and felt betrayed when rose gave up her form to create a life with greg yeah like a, a Stephen, like not create a life like go and set up a house yes. and stuff but like more literally yeah um yeah and i i think that uh there's a lot to say about power dynamics and sort of who who rose was um there so there's very much a strange family unit presented um between there being multiple people in parental roles and some of them being aliens what do you think that sort of has to say or about our own society or whether as guidance or commentary or i like it as a reflection of the reality of the world and of society because families do look different and even within the world of steven universe we see very different family compositions so yeah there's steven who lives with his three alien aunts basically four arguably since garnet's really two people who have become a single consciousness most of the time and then greg who is Essentially sort of like the divorced parent who doesn't live with the child, but like definitely spends regular time and is an emotional support. And we see that that dynamic works for them. They figured out how to handle it. Steven knows who to talk to. He feel there's someone he can talk to about most things. He has someone who's in a like closer to a peer uh, with him in Amethyst, like someone who he can play and be goofy with and who won't always be holding him to, like, an, a standard of, like, trying to always get him to do what they think he's developmentally capable of doing or whatever, like, pushing him all the time, basically. Someone who he can just relax and goof off with and also fight with in a way that's safe where their relationship is safe and yeah. there isn't the same sort of power dynamic a little because she is more of an older sister-ish role, but who is very supportive. But then he also has those, like, reliable people in his life where he can go to with a, if things are really a problem or he really needs help and that's pearl and garnet particularly garnet it probably helps to have future vision um yeah as far as gaining a reputation for always knowing what to do but um you know the people that he can come to when he's really having a crisis or needs some guidance or just doesn't know how to make something work but back to what I was saying about, like, even within the show, you see a bunch of different kinds of family units. I mean, you also see Vidalia and Yellowtail's family, where that's a blended family. Vidalia had a child with Greg's former manager and raised that child by herself. But she met Yellowtail and they got married and they had a child. And there's a little bit of family drama between Yellowtail and her older child. But they figured out and he ultimately is able to recognize that, like, Yellowtail is an important and 
stable parental role in his uh, figure in his life. Yeah. Um, then you have the the pizza family, who it's a multi generational family where you have like this matriarch figure who is the grandmother who still has a lot of authority over the generations younger than her son, his wife, his kids, but they all run a business together and they're all very like loving and supportive. There's uh, the Fry family who we never see their mom. Uh, so it's a single dad with two boys, the one who's in his maybe early 20s and a, one who's like maybe 12, you know? And they seem to be pretty ha- happy and like they have their disagreements, but their dad is very supportive, yeah. you know? So it, I really do like that it doesn't just show mom dad kid i mean it does with connie like connie has both her parents are together and their family dynamic is pretty healthy although they're pretty they're pretty strict um but but happy you know so i like that none of the families are the same they're all different but i mean connie is sadie is a single mom sorry yes and sadie is a single mom yeah lars has got a fairly normal family as well that's true yeah Um, but i think that connie is interesting because her and her family are set up so much as a direct foil for Stephen and his family mm-hmm. because she has a strict but very normal upbringing. She has a traditional family unit. She has, you know, concerns about school and has to do her music lessons and things like this. Goes to summer camps and yeah, things like that. Yeah, which provides a lens through which to see how strange Stephen's family unit and life are, but how that's okay. Like it doesn't have to be normal to be. Healthy. What, what does normal even mean? Right. Um, so yeah, I think that's interesting. And it's interesting because that relationship with Connie is really the main thing that lets Stephen know that his family life and his childhood has been very different from other kids. Yeah. Because before he had no basis for comparison, as you say. And toward the end of the show, when he's trying to figure out in um, Steven Universe Future, part of that last arc is him trying to figure out who he is outside of trying to figure out who his mother was. And one of the things that happens is he and Greg go to Greg's childhood home and you see what led to Greg reacting so hard away from a very traditional household and upbringing. And you start to see that Steven's childhood was so different, not necessarily because he was half Jim, but because Greg was rebelling so hard and so long away from a traditional upbringing. He was miserable being raised by his very predictable two-parent household where they had the same meal cycle every week, you know, Monday meatloaf or whatever it was, like every week, and feeling so constrained by all of those choices being made at one point when he was too young to weigh in and never, never moved at all, and having all of his creative energy disapproved of and stifled and he never wanted that for his kid and like i think that before you see some of that it can be easy to think that oh steven doesn't go to school because the gems don't see the point because he's a gem and that's not how that how their society works but i would suspect that it has a lot more to do with greg well that's an interesting point because like when greg becomes extremely wealthy Mm-hmm. One of the things that they talk about doing with the money is Greg goes, you can go to college. And Stephen's like, I don't really need to go to college. I, I'm with the gems. I'm off fighting monsters and saving the universe. Like, that wouldn't necessarily be of a great benefit to me. Sure. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, you can say that Stephen has internalized these ideas that he doesn't need to go to school. 
But at the same time, it's interesting that Greg go, that is the reaction that Greg has is, oh, well, you know, if we could afford anything, you should go to school. So Sure, but college is different from other school. College so, is elective yeah. and you have a lot more freedom in what you decide to study. I think that Greg probably never pushed back. Like if the gems weren't going to put Stephen in school because whether it never occurred to them or whether they didn't think it was a good idea, Greg was not the sort of person, I think, because of his upbringing and how miserable he was and like the things he found joy in life in terms of finding himself on tour and stuff. He wasn't going to push back and be like, no, he needs to go to school. You know, he needs to have that that proper foundational education because it's not what Greg values. He doesn't value those sorts of traditional markers of success and ambition. He's not an ambitious person in that way. Very different from Connie's parents and Connie herself, who's internalized a lot of her parents' ambition and marking success by those sorts of conventional achievements. Not to say that that's a bad thing. I myself also very achievement oriented and two master's degrees, etc. So yeah, but I think it was both of both sides of that, even though it's easy to think, oh, it's because his mom is an alien that he doesn't go to school. It's like, I think it's also because his dad is a person who doesn't value yeah. that kind of life. Yeah, that's fair. But Stephen ends up yelling at Greg about him having missed out on those common experiences that could have brought him closer with other kids his age, could, may have led to his development being a little bit more on, uh, more linear, or a little bit more aligned with human kids. Because you find out that he sort of, like, hit a lot of his physical development is linked to his mental development, and he sort of stagnates for, like, seven years or something. Yeah. I mean- um, but if he'd been going through the school system... He probably would have progressed more along with the other kids he knew. Yeah, and it's it's covered a couple of times that his aging is tied to like he can control. Like uh, there's an episode in which he decides he needs to be older and steadily grows into an old man across the case. Goes an episode. This is a very weird show. It's and that's probably one of the horror ones. I think that's, yeah, like, that's... more terrifying of an episode. But um, that shift to being angry at Greg for not ha- having that normal life only comes in Steven Universe future. At the end of the original season is when he sort of gets to this point of, like, they, they solve all the problems that have been brought about by the Gem War. At the start of the Steven Universe movie, he's sending out a message to peace to bring everyone together, and it's it's working pretty well. The conflicts that are, happen in Steven Universe Future are all either about Steven and him trying to work things out for himself, or a couple of sort of hanger-ons from Gem War stuff. And people who didn't quite get the memo yet, or don't know what to do with themselves in a similar way. So it's sort of, he resents not having that life when he realises that his other commitments have been fulfilled, and sort of what he was using to define himself before has gone away. Can't remember how that was going to tie into the ageing thing. Well, I was saying that, just speculating that if he had gone to school, he probably would have aged along with his classmates. Yeah. And I think that's really borne out by the fact that once he's friends with Connie, his ageing seems to sort of track with hers. Yeah. Um, He needs that sort of mark of comparison and shared experience to sort of match, if that makes sense, just mentally. Yeah. So a lot of the identity stuff is borne out in, um, especially early on, Stephen identifying himself within that family unit that he's in, and then moving on defining that as being different from the other family units that he sees. And I think that you see this a lot with, I mean... I think everyone's identity within the world to some extent is defined as different from those over there. And we can see that on 
you know, small levels and on macro levels, it's the same reason that Trump can roll people up by saying, oh, you know, it's these Mexicans coming across the border. Not like us, we're different from them. And that sort of outsider othering way of ident creating your own identity is used to interesting effects in this show, I think, because when we see in flashback episodes the way that the Crystal Gems were before Greg and Rose got together, they're very much in their own place. They've got a big fence up and there's no communication between the two. And it's only because Rose is going out and seeing Greg's shows that there's any crossover point there. And they're Greg forces the thing. So you get, at that point, there's this othering stuff going on. But within the course of the show, the gems have been accepted into the community to varying degrees. The, the mayor still thinks that they're Stephen's aunts. And... Her sisters. He calls them his sisters. Oh, does he? Yeah. I lost track of that. Yeah. Um, um, I think somebody does refer to them as his aunts. Yeah. Maybe it's, maybe he says both. Maybe he's just like, uh, aunt, sisters? I don't remember. But yeah, somebody definitely calls them his sisters. Yeah. So they get sort of included into the beach city mentality, of beach city being the place that this is set. It's inventively known, named. It's not like Empire City down the road. <laughs> but then their reaction to any other gems that are coming from Homeworld or have been around and aren't part of that rebellion, I think has some similar traits of they're not like us mentalities that are interesting to see from a group that were not like everyone else. Yeah, I think that's true. The um, And I think what's even more interesting about that is that it all starts with with Rose being fascinated by organic life on planet Earth. And even when she's, like, she's very interested in it, and even when she's, like, getting to know Greg and, you know, fascinated by him as a person and as a creature, she still has this very sort of elitist mindset where she doesn't really see him as the same level of organism that she is, like, the same level of sentience or of consequence. Mm. and that and greg picks up on this and is like trying is asking her if she respects him and she laughs which is not the right response <laughs> if anyone ever asks if you respect them um just got anyone uh, looking for a little bit of advice there you go don't do that but um so somehow she gets from there to a point where she wants to give up her life to become something else to become part of an organism that is as human as she can get by merging her essence with the essence of a human. Even though she won't really be herself, it's like the closest she wants to experience that, and she knows that she can't because she's a fundamentally different organism, like a, a mineral-based life form that's just not going to ever be uh, carbon-based. It's just not going to happen, and or at least not in the same way. I guess she's a diamond, so she's also carbon-based, but you know what I mean biological rather than mineral right. yeah exactly but i think by having that emotional connection over time with greg and recognizing oh wait this person can think and feel with as much complexity as i can even though i had been raised to believe you know as a diamond and as part of the the gem hegemony to believe that all organic life was inconsequential and just sort of an impediment to our terraforming and uh yeah, basically it's just, you know, essentially bush to whack on our way to plant more gems it comes to recognize the personhood of humans. And it takes the other gems a while to get to that point. And I think it's really raising Stephen 
Because at the point that you see them where they have the fence between them and Beach City, that's before Rose has become Stephen. And I think it's in raising Stephen and recognizing someone that they see as a person because he's Jim and he's their friend's Jim, but also as a human and probably also having that increased contact with Greg sort of wakes them up to the fact that those are also real people, real life forms and not lesser life forms, but rather something to be protected. Um, and I do think there's something to the to their lifespan too, because the gems live for live indefinitely. They, they reference millions of years and thousands of years, and they're identical. And there's no aging process referenced in any way, so they seem to just be able to go on forever unless they're destroyed, which is very difficult to do. So that perception of organic life as this fragile thing, initially that fragility is characterized as... Weakness? Yeah. Uh, well, well, fragile and weak are kind of... Some, as inferiority. Mm. First characterized more as inferiority, and then later is characterized as precious and something that you need to conserve and protect and defend. I think we kind of got off topic, I'm sorry. I kind of got off topic, sorry. No, no, I think that it's still that sort of like how you view others sort of thing. Sure. Because there's a lot of times in the show where... And I'm, I'm going to attribute this to the showrunner, and I'm sure that there's many people involved, but there's a thing that's many times in the show where Rebecca Sugar is... tips her hand to the fact that she's trying to say something and is not just making a show to be entertaining. There are some overtly political comments that are made throughout the show. Um, so I think that when you get when you get groups that are clashing in these ways and how they end up resolving into some sort of harmony. It's very intentional and in trying to send some sort of message. There's a lot to be said about the way that the othering plays into how the conflicts are resolved and what the goal of those conflicts often is and how people should be treated, but I think that's going to be more applicable to some of the conversations that we want to have next week. So we'll put that on the back burner for the moment. Sounds good. Back to the sort of othering and things like that. I think it's important to bring up the overtly queer themes in the show, which have been a way that Rebecca Sugar and the team very intentionally like pushed the envelope as far as what they could get included in the show, and certain scenes were definitely censored and cut and misrepresented or dubbed over in broadcasts in other parts of the world. Yeah. Because there's a phenomenon that is possible with gems, but dramatically discouraged by the gem authority, uh, called fusion, which... Because all the gems seem to be female. Well, all, all the gems use she, her pronouns. Yes. Um, which I think it's worth noting that Rebecca Sugar identifies as non-binary and uses she, her, and they, them as her pronouns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they're mineral-based life forms that don't reproduce sexually, so they don't really have any sort of binary gender you know, situation. They form a body based on who they feel they are, which is in some ways sort of programmed by the type of gem they have. There's some variation, but there's also like a general type that goes along with a particular gem. Point being, they all use she, her pronouns. Most of them look female, at least from a human perspective. And fusion is when two different gems kind of form one light body together. That's a different person that's combining the traits of both. So if they're the same kind of gem, it'll just be like the same kind of gem, but big. But when it's two different ones, you'll get a very different personality and a very different look and set of abilities. And one of the main characters, Garnet, is a fusion between two different gems, a ruby and a sapphire. And 
that relationship is very very much coded and very intentionally coded as a lesbian relationship Mm -hmm. throughout the show and so that was definitely a point of controversy for the show in terms of the censorship and things i mentioned before and also like having to sort of negotiate with cartoon network as to like what could be done and what was feasible etc um and so i think that that's an important aspect of this conversation of othering as well because fusion is taboo in by the gem hegemony so you have this creature this person who is a lesbian relationship embodied being very much frowned upon and othered and uh stigmatized well not in the show but like by an authoritative body in the show yeah and um they do eventually have like a full-on marriage ceremony for uh ruby and sapphire Mm -hmm. where they also in a very lovely way sort of subvert your um, gender expectations on some of the like wedding tropes, like the more masculine presenting one of them wears like the pretty dress and stuff, and the one whose gem form usually is basically a ball gown wears like a tux, and it's very adorable. Which I personally think they did specifically because in some overdubs in countries that wanted to censor it, they censored it so that Ruby was male. And so I think that they kind of did that in the wedding scene as a bit of a fuck you to those, like, have fun with this. <laughs> Also because it's adorable. It is also adorable. Um, Yeah, no, I'm just sort of running through my thoughts on the fusion stuff. There are multiple times when fusion is a platonic, pragmatic way to get things done. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of associations between it and a more romantic relationship to some degree or another. So I say romantic. But, uh, like, there's a lot of stuff with Pearl and Rose fusing and Greg wanting to be able to fuse with Rose and not being able to because he doesn't have a gem. Yeah. It's an interesting way for a kid's show to tackle some very severe emotional dynamics. Because mm-hmm. um, it's about connection more than anything else. And there is the... Uh, it's in the movie, isn't it? When Greg and Stephen fuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's purely about their familial relationship. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I agree with you. Fusion is about connection. And so the type of fusion... like I think every fusion represents a relationship that the components have with each other. And just like you can have a range of different types of relationships, you know, a different relationship with your romantic partner versus your mom versus your cousin versus your best friend since you were five, all of those are deep and strong bonds, but they're very different in character and they bring different parts of you out and highlight different parts of you. Uh, you know, different aspects of yourself are more or less important and more or less visible in the in that context, you know. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting a couple of the specific fusions, namely Rainbow Quartz 2.0, which is the Stephen and Pearl combination, Mm -hmm. which I believe uses they-he pronouns. Yeah, he-him-they-them, yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting because it's the only, I think it's the only fusion you see on the show until Stephen and Greg that uses he pronouns at all. Because Stevani uses they, them. Uh, and that's the other fusion I really want to talk about, because Stevani's, Stevani being the uh, fusion of Stephen and Connie, the way that that character is introduced in general is just sort of fascinating, because they end up fusing to compete in a race. And... Not the first time. The first time they are dancing. Yeah, I guess They're they just are. dancing on the beach, and then they go to a rave. And then do they race? That's in another episode, that's yeah. Another... But their relationship, like... 
Their fusion is never raised as a question to anyone else. Everybody's reaction to Stevani is, wow, they're really hot. <laughs> Which is mildly concerning when they're both 12-year-olds, but... Eh. I think they're younger than that when they first fuse. I think they're like nine or well, something. Well, it's the aggregate ages that's important. That's there. true. But they're both, they're really young. And like that fusion starts out as essentially this beautiful platonic childhood friendship. You know, the, the uncomplicated pure love between like two close kids. And then as they get older and their feelings develop and change, it kind of becomes more romantic, I think, uh, toward the end. Yeah. But it's more of a companionship expression for most of the show. But like with like with the gems, people's reaction to them tend to be mostly wow. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of nice to have this show where they're showing kids, people who are strange and different, mm-hmm. and people who are non-binary, and things like this, and... That's just the thing people are. Um, I think it's... I really hope that we're raising a generation of people that can see a non-binary person on the street and go, hey, that's like Stevani. Mm-hmm. And that's their reaction and then they move on. Mm-hmm. Um, Apparently that has happened. Like, there have been people who have um, posted on social media that they've encountered children who asked about their gender or something or characterize their gender as being like Stevani or have been able to explain their gender in that way and have the kid go, oh, okay, and like move right along and not have it be a thing. Yeah. Representation is important. It is. It's, that's fantastic to hear. Uh, on a very just nerdy note, I want to get it for a second. From, from, from you? From me, yeah, I know. Oh. Um, huh. I think it makes a lot of sense that Steven's fusions with other humans would be incredibly attractive to other humans because gem bodies are made of light and like they seem to be very much organized like geometrically and while a pure gem is going to be like very alien looking and it's going to have sort of that you are not alive type of thing where it might not be as compelling they're often very angular yeah very a little off-putting i would expect that a fusion between steven and another human in developing the body would be perfectly symmetrical and humans perceive people as more beautiful the more symmetrical their features are. So Stevani and who I like to call Mr. Universe, which is I what I call the Greg Steven fusion. I think it actually has like a different name, but I think the different name is dumb. I don't remember what it is. Or even I, I just don't like it as much. Whatever whatever it is, I clearly Stig. It's clearly not that good or I would remember it. I think it is Stag and I think that's stupid. Anyway, I would expect Mr. Universe and and Stevani to be perfectly symmetrical beings which would be extremely compelling and like send these subconscious signals of health and vitality to other people which would also be accurate because steven's gem keeps him immortal and young and healthy and stuff like he heals and things so like his body heals immediately so those would be accurate signals (laughs) this person is very healthy and robust well, the other thing is that gems bodies react to how they perceive themselves. Mm-hmm. So there's an argument that people want to perceive themselves as beautiful. So some part of either Stephen, Greg, or both perceive themselves as, if in a perfect world, having an eight-pack. <laughs> uh, and hair for days. Well, I mean, Vidalia does say when Greg was young, he was really hot. And like, I guess something about it's being... a backhanded compliment. Well, I mean, it kind of is, yeah. I mean, he does lose a lot of the hair on top when he gets older. But, you know, when combined with his younger offspring, like, yeah. It's like recapturing 
the best of his youth, I guess. I don't know. That could also be unhealthy. But point being, it makes sense to me that they would be, like, breathtakingly gorgeous to humans. Even if it really was kind of a shocker with the Greg Stephen infusion. It was like, where the fuck did that muscularity come from? I'm sorry. What? I'm not sure that makes logical sense to me, but okay. Um, um, seeing the, like, Stephen in his 20s version where he ages to being in his 20s and being very muscular, it makes a little more sense. Yeah, but especially because that version of him also has less baby face, less baby fat in the face, so yeah. his jaw is a little bit more squared off, and so then it seems like it comes a little less out of nowhere, but when I first saw it in the movie, I was like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> You're talking about the scenes where he's training with Jasper in Steven Universe Future, not the scene where he's aging in the first season, right? I'm talking about the one where he's aging in the first season, and he gets to that age again another point in time. Right. Um, but I think when he gets there, so... when he's training with Jasper, it's much more... It's a more organic thing. Yeah. yeah. He just looks like probably what he should be looking like around 16 or 18 or ish, you know, yeah. uh, late teens where he's lost some of the baby face, but not all of it. And you can kind of start to see the shape of his bones a little bit more. Yeah. But yeah, that was a bit of a digression. Sorry. I just, the whole symmetry thing is neat. But I think it takes us to a, to a good point to transition to the next thing I want to talk about within the identity stuff, which is the show is very, I think well-tuned to show the way that people's identities can evolve and that who someone was isn't who they will be. I think Rose is probably the very best example of that. Which I, is, I think would be a great place to start off looking at this because I think Rose shows that both that and also the way that multiple views of one person can be true. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. So, I mean, as you mentioned before, as with in Onward, all of Stephen's understandings of Rose are filtered through other people. And throughout the series, I think you get sort of three people that... Like, Amethyst and Garnet obviously have some strong opinions on Rose, and Garnet is definitely able to give some interesting insight. But I think Pearl, Spinell, and Greg all provide some really good lenses to look through. I think they end up ultimately showing Stephen some of the worst of who Rose slash Pink Diamond was. And... It makes sense that Stephen doesn't really get to learn about that until he's a little older because it doesn't help a five-year-old to know that their mom was a war criminal or whatever or left someone in a garden for millions of years. Well, even Paul didn't know about that. Well, sure, but Stephen doesn't meet Spinel until he's older. Yeah. But no one was going to tell him that, oh yeah, your mom, you know, didn't really see humans as real for a long time and was part of conquering this planet like when you're five that's not helpful i guess you don't really get to know what that means anyway right exactly like it's only as he gets older and is capable of understanding the flaws in her that he starts to kind of pick at the stories and find out more but even within the good qualities that are presented by those characters they're all very different aspects of it i guess spinel had been around the longest yeah. Or seen Pink Diamond at the youngest. Yeah, I think Spinel of those, definitely knew her earliest in her development. And she knows Pink Diamond effectively as a child. Yes. Um, And perhaps a child that enjoys tearing the wings off of flies. <laughs> or if not that, a child who doesn't understand how to take care of another living being, doesn't understand responsibility. Like, that is the child who doesn't feed their goldfish. And it dies because they were too young to have that responsibility and didn't really understand what it meant. I think is probably the most charitable understanding of it that I can have or who's maybe a little bit 
it's hard because gems don't just die. Like, they just live on forever. And Pink Diamond was in the most privileged position in the society, even if she was the youngest and least respected of the diamonds. By the other diamonds, I mean. Everyone respected her, except the other diamonds, who were older. She had free reign. Like, she was essentially a, a spoiled princess who had no responsibility and no real limitations on her power other than that people weren't giving her important jobs. And that was her issue. She wanted to do the the stuff her big sisters were doing, basically. And because she's in this position where she's constantly aware of the fact that she's at the top of the hierarchy, I don't think she understood that that comes with a responsibility to the people who are, quote-unquote, below you in that hierarchy. I mean, literally below you in the hierarchy. So she, I don't think, respected Spinel as a person who had feelings and who she was responsible for the well-being of. And because Spinel wasn't going to die, she would be fine physically in that garden forever. I think, you know, Rose left her there and forgot about her the same way, like, a child might put something in a box, like a toy in a box, and then forget that it ever existed. The difference being that Spinel was a person and had feelings and emotion, and, you know, was hurt by that. Yeah. Went a little nuts from the isolation. And then, I think we'll come back to Pearl. I think Greg, I feel as though Greg always loved Rose, but maybe idolized, but didn't see her as perfect. Well, I think if you idolize, you do sort of. I think he was infatuated with her at first, but he wasn't blind to her faults. Yeah. I think is more to the point. Like, he he had that issue we were talking about before, where he realized that she might not see him as human, or see him as a person in the same way as she saw other gems, and maybe saw him as inferior to her in some way and didn't respect him. And that was an issue for them. And he says something back to her when he's asking her if she respects him, and she laughs, and he says something about, will you talk to me like a real person or something like that? And that hurts her because she takes it as him seeing her as an alien, which is something she's trying to be less alien. She's trying to be more human and... I think that she's very sensitive to that comment because she's very aware that she can't be human and it's what she wants. Like, she doesn't want to be at the top of this hierarchy of immortal gems. She wants a fragile and finite lifespan where she can feel things in the fullness of it the way that humans appear to do. And so that hurts her and she realizes They've sort of, that she's been othering him, I think, in the way that she, I don't, I don't think she necessarily was as aware of before. Yeah. Um, but so he is able to see that she was still trying to deprogram in a lot of ways. And then Spinel turns up with sort of the horror story of Rose, mm-hmm. or Pink Diamond, and like this story of who she was before Stephen knew anything about her. When she was careless. Callous. 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 I mean, you know, he has that like, that thing where he is almost doing the future armor. I'm shocked. Uh-huh. Well, not that shocked. Yeah. Which I think is an important testament of how much he's learned about her. Like, okay, yeah. I actually did know that she could be really callous. So he started to be able to consolidate those things where, you know, he's grown up in a house of her with a big picture of her on the wall and all these stories about how great and loving she was and the fact that, you know, the thing that she cared about was life and... She has this garden and things, and then starts to understand that there was this other side to her that can be true as well. But Pearl manages to sort of, like, bridge that gap, which is interesting for their relationship, because Pearl 
through some fucked up power relationship stuff, uh, was made to not be able to communicate that Rose was Pink Diamond in disguise. So she was able to see all of these flaws. And I think on some level recognised that they were flaws, but sort of managed to have infatuation take over. Is that fair? It is. I also think that in some ways Pearl was incapable of not obeying, like physically incapable of not obeying and loving Pink because she was literally made to serve her and to amuse her and to be whatever she needed her to be, like to be whatever Pink needed her to be. And while after Pink Diamond is gone, and Rose is gone and has become part of Steven, she's able to sort of break away from that. And I think that that's because in a more literal programming type of sense, I don't think she was really capable of figuring out who she was and what she loved and what she valued aside from pleasing Pink Diamond until she was gone. So even later when Pearl is confronted by the stories of Pink Diamond's first Pearl, who she seriously damaged in an abusive, like, violent outburst, which was not the first time she had been violent to her Pearl, she refuses to believe it because she knew Pink Diamond after she had damaged that Pearl and after she realized that's not, after Pink Diamond had realized she didn't want to be that person, she didn't want to be violent and... She didn't want to be abusive, and she wanted to be a caring influence in the world, a loving influence and a, a nurturing influence. So Pearl knew her when she was trying to change for the better, when she had recognized some of her worst flaws. And because she was made to please her, she was there to reinforce the best in her and to see the best in her. And so I think that definitely is borne out by the way that she does set I think she's the biggest part of setting up Rose as this sort of idealized version uh, for Stephen when he's growing up. Because Garnet makes a few comments. I mean, she also puts Rose on a bit of a pedestal because Rose is the first to validate her existence as a fusion and not treat it as a bad thing. But she also, Garnet also seems to have a healthier idea of that the relationship between Pearl and Rose was unhealthy. And Amethyst only knew rose when she was trying to be good so they the of the people who knew rose when she wasn't further along on her like moral development pearl was in some ways i think physically incapable of really acknowledging or seeing it yeah so you end up with these sort of like different narratives that are spun about rose and pink diamond throughout the show and i think it's fairly rare that there's ever a lie told about them but it's kind of the the Star Wars original series kind of truth that is told. It's like, well, you know, why, why did you tell me that Vader killed my father? Well, in a way he did. Mm-hmm. I was being kind of a weasel tongue with it, but... Yeah. But all those different perspectives that you get of them are true. And where it's that thing where someone can turn up and say Rose was a traitor or a war criminal, and those things aren't false. It's... A perspective, though. Yeah. I mean, Stephen is at one point put on trial for shattering Pink Diamond because the Diamonds don't know that Pink Diamond faked her death and became Rose Quartz. And they have the narrative that Pink Diamond, or that Pink Diamond was shattered by the leader of the rebellious Crystal Gems, Rose Quartz. And then a couple of Zircons who act as lawyers during that trial, one of them kind of does the logical exercise of, wait a minute, how would a gem ever shatter a diamond because it's just physically not possible. So it must have been a diamond who shattered Pink Diamond. 
And then the Dians poof the Zircon for daring to say something so truthful and uh, outrageous like that. But it turns out that the Zircon was right, at least as far as it being impossible for a quartz soldier to shatter a diamond. They don't make their soldiers capable of killing them because that would be stupid. And it turns out that she was never shattered. She made fake shattered pieces and made it look like she had been shattered. Yeah. Um, so, but she was still a war criminal. She did take a bunch of troops and fight a war against her people. That can be argued, like, she. you could argue that she is a traitor for that. I mean, we can get into it more ne- next week on sure. our, um, you know, our war criminals part of the podcast. But, I mean, there is the whole issue of the other diamonds effectively used biological warfare against them. So. Oh, definitely. No, uh, I'm not saying the diamonds are the good guys in that situation. Um, but, yeah, as to your point of... People are only giving kind of one limited view of Pink Diamond Rose Quartz at a time. Jasper talks about Pink Diamond as like, you know, she was her diamond. She was great and a good, you know, all this stuff. But also speaks of Rose Quartz as being like a great warrior who was, who was a brilliant tactician and who Jasper respected. And that was also probably true. Rose was a diamond. She was trained as a diamond. She was being prepared to lead a colony. So she would presumably have learned all of the, you know, strategic skills and stuff that she would one day be expected to execute and employ. Pearl has this idealized version of her because she was in love with her and she was built to serve her. Garnet views her as this universally accepting individual because that's Garnet's most important experience of her, is as someone who accepted Garnet when no one else would. Same thing with Amethyst. Rose suggested that they keep Amethyst and raise her when Amethyst emerged alone on the planet. And so she views Rose as this person who was sort of a mother figure to her and, like, loved her and was there for her. Greg sees her as the great love of his life, who tragically had to give her own life for them to have a child. And so none of that's not true, but all of it is very small pieces of the whole. Bismuth has a very different perspective on Rose. Bismuth only knew Rose as Rose Quartz, not as Pink Diamond. And... Only knew her as a general as well. Right, only knew her as a general. And Bismuth created a weapon that would shatter other gems, and Rose refused to use it. And when they argued about it, Rose poofed bismuth like destroyed her light form and like put her gem in a bubble so she couldn't reform because she didn't want that sort of a weapon to be unleashed as part of the war which is a noble thing to not want to not want to introduce something that causes a permanent death to a species that doesn't die only gets temporarily injured but then she never tells her friends who are also very close friends with bismuth what happened so they are left to just think that bismuth was shattered or corrupted on the battlefield and is not recoverable and that their friend is lost forever and when bismuth finds out that that happened that rose never told the other crystal gems what happened to her she's crushed and heartbroken it's like i thought i meant something to you how could you never say anything about this happening um and initially thinks that Stephen is the same as Rose, but eventually, like, when they have a similar confrontation, Stephen does tell the gems about it, and that is part of how Stephen realizes that he and his mom are different people. He can make different choices. Yeah, which I think, um, like, is the big thing here, is that you get this, the different aspects of people being brought through, but also it's the ability for the characters both within the show and within the history of the show, because it has such a rich history to it, to be able to evolve and progress in their own ways. And it's very clear that, 
you know, I mentioned is that who you were isn't who you're going to be. But you never will not have been the person that you were. You can't change yeah. that. You can't change your own past. You can't erase the past. Which is interesting because it seems to be what Pink Diamond really wanted to do. She didn't want anyone to know she had been Pink Diamond. She wanted to start over as Rose Quartz and never have to confront the fact that she was part of that hegemony that was colonizing all of the universe and that she was a person who had hurt other people. She wanted to forget about it and start over, which you really can't do. That's going to follow you in some way. Yeah, even if you make the people close to you forget or not be able to communicate it. Yeah. Um, I mean, Steven ends up getting having to deal with the legacy that she tried to run away from. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's a large part of what is given in the show is that there's this... There's the legacy that you inherit is sort of other people's problems within the show. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of the show is about Stephen having to deal with what Rose left behind. And just that inability to escape the past, even down to spin out mm-hmm. um, in the movie. It's just, you know, oh, you think you're done? No, here's another part of Rose's shitty-ass past that mm-hmm. is uh, here to cause you more problems. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Stephen's growing up throughout the show is sort of this series of shattering of misconceptions in his own character arc and evolution. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also just as importantly, him realizing that what works for other people isn't necessarily going to work for him or mm-hmm. be true for him, especially at the beginning of the show when he's trying to figure out his powers. He keeps going to the other gems to ask for their advice on how they access their abilities and they yeah. give him advice that's very in character for who they are as people, but is not true for him. Most easily pointed to is the summoning of the weapon, like the gems a lot of the time can summon a weapon out of their gem. And they each give some sort of very them explanation of how they do it. And they're all different. And that's very confusing to Stephen. And he tries all of those methods and none of them work. But he eventually realizes that he has to get in touch with particular emotions that are related in some way to the power that he wants. He is able to float when he is happy. He is able to summon his... Well, most things he can do when he's happy or when he is feeling connected to other people, like when he wants to protect somebody, um, is a lot of the time when a lot of his powers manifest because a lot of them are protective powers or regenerative powers. So it makes sense that they would be accessed through feeling connected. But that's not true of the other gems. Pearl's explanation of how she accesses her weapons is a very, like, meditative type of exercise. And that makes sense because she's a very cerebral and methodical type of person. Yeah. Which Stephen isn't. He's very much driven by his heart. Yeah, and I think from a storytelling aspect, the having the emotions and the powers tied together is really useful for showing that evolution of character. Because, as with any good anime, you know, er- every couple of weeks there's a new power, it gets stronger, and, mm-hmm. you know, fortunately the enemies get stronger as he goes. Cause... Mm-hmm. It's very convenient that way. Yes. And it means that as that character is coded with more emotional abilities, they get more 
abilities as well. Mm -hmm. And wrestling with those feelings and those issues can be easily represented through powers or maintaining his physical being. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this obviously comes to a head in the climax of Steven Universe Future, where he literally becomes a huge monster because he's decided that he's a monster who's terrible to people because he's a teenager and that's how people feel. Um, right. And he's it, suffering from depression, therefore he thinks he's a monster. Right, and I love that they point out a little earlier in that arc when he visits the doctor, and this is part of the healthy messaging that is so well woven throughout the show, both runs of show and the movie, of giving just actual useful real-world information as far as healthy development, how to be supportive of people... Things like meditation, mindfulness, all that stuff. In one of those episodes leading up to him full-on transforming into a monster, he goes to the doctor for the first time in his life, and Dr. Mahesh Warren, Connie's mom, explains that his skeleton shows signs of all of the injuries he's suffered through all of the crazy battles that you see throughout the earlier parts of the show, and that even though his body heals immediately, that's still traumatic emotionally and in terms of your development and your ability to emotionally regulate, and that... It looks like he's responding to emotional stressors in the same way that your body responds to a life or death situation. Just because it's been traumatized so many times that that's the easy pathway for his body to take when stressed. And it's resulted for him in his body bulging out all crazy because his emotional state affects his literal, literal physical body because of the gem side. Eventually, because he is trying to reconcile being a diamond, which means he had a, a part of him had a part in colonizing the universe and causing untold destruction. And because he's realized that he doesn't know what to do with himself if he's not putting out fires and helping other people, he starts to feel like he doesn't know how to have a genuine connection with other people unless he's helping them with something. And then starts to doubt his ability to be a good friend and to like be connected to another person in a way that's not about him and making himself feel good. And I think that's a big part of why he starts to tell himself that he's a monster. And it's like, I don't know how to relate to you if I'm not helping you fix something. So I must not really be your friend. I must not really love you. It, it must be me being all about me. And I'm sure that brings up a lot of stuff about Pink because she was also very instrumentalizing and used people in a lot of ways that were not cool. So it makes sense that then that results in him becoming a literal monster. And the only thing to do is what you are supposed to do when someone is spiraling like that. It's to make sure they know that you love them, that, that you're able to communicate that those feelings will pass and not make it about you, but make sure you're you're focusing on supporting them. And that's what they end up doing. Like they start, or the diamonds in particular, start throwing a pity party of, oh, this is our fault, etc. And Connie has to come in and be like, yeah, yeah, a lot of that this stuff that he's dealing with, a lot of it is your fault, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is he needs us. He doesn't need to listen to you blame yourselves. He needs us to be there for him. And so then they are able to focus on that, on putting themselves in a position where they can hug him and tell him that it'll be okay and that he's not a monster. Another way that the show does a really great job of integrating useful messages or healthy messages for kids and really people of any age is the episode Mindful Education, where essentially half the episode is a musical number that teaches how to meditate and how to handle intrusive thoughts and coming to terms with maybe negative things that you've done or that you have the potential to do without basically 
deciding that you're a horrible person, you know, being able to recognize, okay, I'm not perfect, but, you know, I have the capacity to recognize aggressive impulses and things like that and move forward and not do that. Yeah, that's um, uh, one that follow focuses on sort of the Connie and Stephen relationship to some degree, right? Yeah, Connie and Stephen have fused into Stevani and I think they're having trouble staying coherent as an entity because Connie's been training in martial arts with Pearl and Steven and a kid knocked into her at school or grabbed her shoulder or something like that was trying to get her attention and she like threw him or something she hurt him in some way by accident just sort of instinctively as a response and was then frightened by the destructive potential and the, the aggressive reaction and having hurt that kid that she didn't want to hurt so she kept having intrusive thoughts about that and like worried about who she was as a person and that was causing problems i think steven may have been in his own head about connie not wanting to talk to him i think or something like that i forget it's been a while since i've seen it but in that episode garnet who is a fusion also walks them through a mindfulness exercise of recognizing that you can acknowledge these thoughts and you can let them go and not fall apart basically yeah i think that there's um a lot of healthy messages that come through in this show and in varying degrees of heavy-handedness. There's some ones about relationships of various types that can be quite upfront about things. There's an episode where Garnet and where Ruby and Sapphire are working through some things and having arguments and it's sort of fairly on the surface of the episode, but there's a lot of the background things as well. I know, I, I really like that one and I think we could talk about that one too. Because a big part of that one is about communication and acknowledging your feelings. Like, even when they seem irrational, acknowledging that they're real and important is important. Yeah. Where they're sort of, like, not communicating and it's coming out in this use of their powers to change the environment around them. And also in them not being able to stay fused. Because they, the whole problem is that the two aspects that make up their relationship are seeing the same situation in a different way. That one is also about deception and, like, betrayal of trust, because Garnet, who is a permanent fusion and a romantic fusion of Ruby and Sapphire, had fused with Pearl to make Sardonyx to perform a task, and they hadn't done it in a long time, and they, uh, and Pearl hadn't fused with anyone in a long time, because, um, she used to fuse with Rose a lot, and then now Rose is gone, and she had missed that feeling of connection, so she then made up excuses and misled the gems, including Garnet, into thinking that they needed to fuse again to fix another problem that she was actually creating. And when Garnet finds out about Pearl's deception and her using them in that way to be part of a fusion, it's a huge betrayal of trust. It's a huge deception. I mean, it's analogous to, like, sleeping with someone under false pretenses. And Garnet splits into Ruby and Sapphire because of it, because Ruby is angry at Pearl about it. And Sapphire is also angry, but she's intellectualizing it because she has future vision and is a much more cerebral person. And she's looking forward in the timeline to the point where they have resolved the conflict with Pearl. And she's sort of escaping to that point in time and avoiding dealing with the immediate feelings. She's essentially saying, we will get over it, so I'm over it. And Ruby's like, no, but this is a big deal. We need to acknowledge these feelings and we deserve to feel our anger right now because we've been hurt. 
eventually Sapphire understands that Ruby is right, that she's been putting off feeling her feelings because it's hard. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of ones which, where that comes up with communications and coping skills is a big thing. I and mean, that whole, the body reflecting the emotions, the powers coming out, whether it's Sapphire and Ruby using their powers unintentionally or whether it's um, Stephen's body changing shapes, etc. Right, because um, I forgot Sapphire like turns the room into ice. Yeah. As she's persistently saying she's fine and like it's... She's not upset and like more and more ice spikes come out of her and just yeah. like, nope, it's all good. I'm not mad. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. okay. <laughs> and I mean, it's sort of, whether you're an adult or a child watching that, you're, it's critiquing those behaviors and representing what the healthy way to work through those things is. Um, I think that's particularly um, a big thing with the Greg and Pearl relationship as they work on through their point and their communication. There's sort of a lack of understanding between them in the first half of the show where that relationship between Pearl and Rose isn't fully understood by Greg. And it's not until they go to Empire City and like she comes along because Stephen's like, hey, I'll have two of my favorite people here. Really? But he's setting them up. He wants them to work this stuff out. Is it a conscious thing? It's been I, I think, I mean, I don't think he explicitly says it, but it's pretty clear that he he put them together so that they could things would come to a head. Yeah, which they do, and it's they get to a point where they actually talk things through and realise that while they have this jealousy over each other by thinking that Rose was maybe more fond of the other one, at the end of the day they have this shared loss in the form of Rose. And the shared love and priority in Stephen. Yeah, and it's all... like I, We haven't really talked about it so far, but as a storytelling thing, like the show uses a lot of musical numbers, which... Well, the Mindful Education one, that was a musical number that right. was entirely like a thing that you can just remember how that song goes as like a sort of a mnemonic yeah. uh, guided meditation. We have a piece of fan art of it on our wall upstairs as well. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so like music used to teach a skill and a coping mechanism. And then with the stuff with Greg and Pearl, like the whole thing is a huge musical across, I think, two episodes. I think there's seven songs, which is crazy because it's like 20 minutes. Yeah. But it's just that use of the songs and the humour to convey what's a very complex relationship and a paradigm shift for those two characters and a change in the way they interact going forwards where those two become close when they've always been kind of standoffish before. Um, but it comes down to just that sort of like communication and relationships and what's important in there. Yeah, they had never really hashed things out. I kind of get the sense that Pearl was just sort of waiting for Greg to die and she wouldn't have to deal with it because in the scheme of a gem lifespan, human lifespans are so short. And so I could see her just feeling like it wasn't worth the emotional pain of doing that, of having that conversation. She had had this perspective that Rose would get bored with Greg and come back to her. And when Rose didn't do that and she was stuck with Greg and Stephen. She decided to just focus all her attention on the part of Rose that was still there yeah. in the form of Stephen. And we see that Greg is pretty conflict averse too. Yeah, yeah. So to go back to the music that um that's used in those episodes though, it's it has a lot of structure of being a full musical. Despite being twenty minutes long, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. But it manages to condense into songs sort of these raw emotions, um and Complex ideas that I think if they were just sort of spoken, wouldn't carry the weight. There's one song in particular that's called It's Over, Isn't It? Where it's just both of them understanding that Rose is gone and that their conflict is over the wrong thing at this point. And sort of 
both coming to terms with that. And it's it's a beautiful song, and it's just very powerful for something that's appearing in what is ostensibly a kid's show. And I don't think that that is an unusual use of music by any stretch. I think no. like there, it's a whole... It's a bit of a trope that like when when there's too much emotion to convey something in words like you have to sing uh to get the emotions out. Sure. Like I I definitely have have seen plenty of things that specifically call out that entire idea of like musicals being exactly that uh, but I think kind that, of mechanism. But But I think that the show itself sort of hangs its hat on that. I think there's a couple of times when like Steven is effectively upset about something and I think Greg's like, Well, why don't you sing about it instead? And it's the pretense for there to be another song and they do tend to sort of get to the root of matters is there a point where greg suggests that steven sings to get his feelings out i think so i don't think so i think that definitely happens like with the lapis lazuli thing like greg is sort of misrepresenting lapis in his song and so then steven does his version which is very much him getting out his feelings about lapis and how she's misunderstood and stuff but in that one I do think it's very clearly a, like, there is no powerful enough, as you say, way to convey these complicated emotions. And so a nuanced musical number is really the best way. Yeah. Um, and I mean, um, I think that that, I, Rebecca Sugar clearly values music. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that it's well represented in the character of Sadie, who is this sort of shy, timid individual who never really feels like she's getting what she wants and can't speak up for herself, who sort of accidentally becomes the lead singer of a weird punk band? How would you describe that music? Well, it's it's hard to say because their music does evolve yeah. quite a bit, um, and she eventually ends that project to start a different, like, softer sound project. Um, yeah. But it is sort of a... Like I mean, a non-binary individual. Yes. It's definitely a punk genre. I... Don't know what kind of punk it is, but it definitely is punk. Yeah, but that's very much her ability to actually express her feelings without what she previously does, which is to not say anything and not say anything and not say anything and then shout. Mm-hmm. Um, and feel very resentful. Yeah. What's the best song? The best song, like, in the entire... <sighs> See, best is a difficult word. I Probably it's over, isn't it? I think that's the most compelling song, at least to me. I think it, it hits you right in the feels... It's also catchy, but not in a boppy kind of a way, but in a it gets stuck in your head kind of a way. It's very melodic. Um, it's definitely one of my favorite ones. Yeah, it's uh, certainly one of my favorite. And I mean, it, this is a trick question because I couldn't answer this for the one song thing. It tells a story. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, Here Comes a Thought is obviously a good contender. That one's really and, lovely um, too. Other Friends is a fun, catchy one from the movie, Spinell's song. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. That's um, the one that got stuck in my head a lot after the yeah. movie. That one really moves. Yes. I think the other one that's sort of a midway point is the, um, when Garnet's fighting Jasper I knew you were going to say that one, yeah. Um, I don't know what it's called. I Am Made of Love? Nope. Stronger Than You. Stronger Than You, yes. That one's also very catchy. Yes. And I think it is a, it's a really nice, um... I really like it as a sort of like, fuck you, you can't beat me down sort of song. Yeah, it's very, it makes, it's a very powerful and uplifting song. Like, yeah. it's a fortifying song. Yes. But I think it, it's over, isn't it? It's um, very powerful as a song of like, moving on and being okay with the fact that some one thing is past and other things will be. So I think it's I think also, one of the things I really like about it is it's very 
it does a very good job of capturing a very complicated set of emotions and circumstance that it's very nuanced. And that's hard to do. I think, at least, I think it's hard to do well, you know? Yeah. So I think the last thing I wanted to touch on, though, was um, there's a few episodes that, as a grown-ass adult, are darker and creepier and make me kind of uncomfortable. There's a couple of episodes I don't watch when I'm rewatching these things. The most notable of which is, I think this, it's it's even something early like episode three, is uh, the, the cat fingers. Yeah, that one's pretty horrific. And I have gone back and rewatched it as part of a rewatch. I wanted to skip it. I have skipped it on a rewatch and I've also not skipped it. And I try to ask myself, okay, why is this episode here? What does it add to the narrative? And that one is doing some of the early development of Greg and Steven's relationship and showing you the bond of trust there and the way that Greg is Steven's emotional center and the touchstone for his emotional development as a human. And so it's important in that regard. However, like a lot of the a lot of the episodes where Steven is dealing with a serious crisis of identity, it's kind of a horror movie of a short episode. I think it's no mistake that the ones where Steven's having a huge crisis of identity are the ones that end up with weird body horror often because his body mutates when his mind is disordered and his emotions are disordered. Yeah. His physical being reflects that in gruesome and off-putting ways. Yeah, as you say, it's something the show comes back to several times. We mentioned the aging episode earlier where he right. starts rapidly aging and it gets quite disturbing towards the end. And there's another point when we were talking before about how Steven sort of plateaus in his aging for a while, probably because he doesn't have a basis for comparison. He's living with gems who don't age and his dad, who is an adult, and that's not a good benchmark for him. So he stays around 12 for like four years or something. And then when he realizes that and and feels like it's weird, he tries to make himself older because he wants to be the same age as his friend Connie. And then because he's pushing his body and it's not ready, he's trying to suddenly be older and that just doesn't work. He's not developmentally there. It reverts to be younger and he reverts to being an infant. So, and that's also pretty horrifying just in like a mental way of like, if you were suddenly a child and an infant and not capable of taking care of yourself in any way which is what happens um so yeah less horrible that one the de-aging less horrible than the aging forward but then there's also you know the later stuff that we were talking about where he turns into a literal monster there's just a couple of other ones i have here which i'd be interested to get your take on why, why both of them are there effectively um there's the island of cactus stevens cacti stevens no it's the cacti. island of uh watermelon stevens watermelon stevens i'm sorry how did i get that confused yeah the cactus comes later and it's more of a weird monster that's reflecting his most unhealthy and toxic emotions yes which uh, is also not good and also really terrifying <laughs> I, I find the watermelon episode quite disturbing do you it is disturbing isn't that don't they like kill one of the watermelons and eat like the watermelons eat watermelons Steven? yeah he sort of creates two tribes of well he creates a whole like host of watermelon people by accident um and then they form into tribes and start murdering each other mm-hmm. um and i think that the result of that episode i think that there might be peace brokered and then he just leaves the island and there's just sort of watermelons sentiently over there yeah Wow, people who haven't seen the show are very confused by yeah, that. No, think, they stopped listening. Aaron, I think it. a part of that is a metaphor for there being different sides to a single person. Or like, mm. you know, different perspectives and impulses that are both true. It's like, Stephen is a compassionate person who is loving and always wants to 
get through to an antagonist to make them not an antagonist antagonist anymore. But at the end of the day, he also will go through and be like a warrior in defense of other groups or to poof the corrupted gems and bubble them before he even really knew what they were. He was doing that. And so he has these martial skills and these aggressive impulses that he is increasingly trying to fight against as he gets older and as he learns more about Pink Diamond and is increasingly traumatized, which makes it very hard for you to deal with your emotional regulation, even when you're not going through puberty. So he's having to deal with a pacifist perspective and orientation, but having to reconcile that with also sometimes feeling really aggressive and also feeling very physically powerful and knowing that, especially over time when he realizes that he is a a diamond, that he also has the raw power to literally dominate a lot of other organisms. So it's like, if I do lose control of my temper, I could cause untold damage. Yeah. Um, I think that combination makes you very afraid of yourself. You're afraid of what you might do, who you might hurt. Do you think that's fair with the watermelon Stevens? Like how, since the watermelon, like the sentient plant life that's created by his saliva is always reflective of him as a person. And so it doesn't seem that far outside the realm of possibility that some of that essence might be a little divided in the same way he is sometimes divided. Yeah. That's a deeper read than I had on it, (laughs) which is why I asked your opinion. What Um, was your read on it? Just that it was weird? Mostly. It's been a long time (laughs) since I've seen that one, so Um, hence I forgot that they weren't cactuses. The last one I had on here was the Stephen and the Stevens episode, Mm -hmm. uh, in which there's some time travel involved, which means that Stephen manages to create multiple versions of himself. And first of all, forms a band with them, because of course you would. Then ends up with too many versions of himself and has to start killing them. And then ends up forming a band with the rest of the Crystal Gems instead, in which they uh, sing a song about how he came to terms with some various things by watching himself die. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's just a whole disturbing concept to me. What, what have you got for me on this one? That one is pretty disturbing. And I think that, again, is back to like trying to reconcile, for him, two things. One, that he, like everyone else, cannot be boiled down to just one trait. Like, we all contain multitudes... He tries to assign different personality traits to each of the Stevens, but they're all Stevens, so they all have all of them. And then, like, the one he's assigned to be the funny one, someone else makes a joke and is like, ah, you can't, that one's the funny one, or whatever. But that's not how people work. We're all Mm. multifaceted. And they think that's part of what he has to learn, and that he ends up warring with himself over the spotlight. But also just understanding consequences. I think it's important that this is pretty early in the show's run, and he's still pretty young in this. It's before he starts grappling with questions of getting older, and before he starts really kind of dealing with the legacy of Rose Quartz Pink Diamond and some of those larger social scale implications in her legacy. It's still him trying to figure out his powers. I think that's more about the easy solution or like mucking around with things that have far-reaching consequences, has far-reaching consequences. Shocking. And, uh, you know, that those things get complicated and can be terrifying. And he, he gets in over his head, basically. Yeah. And I, I think that's something that happens to everybody at some point when you're young and you're like, you realize, oh, I've been careless or short-sighted and now I don't know what to do and I've gotten really overwhelmed, you know, and that's sort of what happens there. And he has to literally fight with himself over what the best thing to do is. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I think that that's probably a good place to leave our conversation for this week. We've talked a lot about like healthy messages around development and identity presented in the show. But I think the big question is, what is the 
main message that you think Rebecca Sugar and the other creative minds behind the show are trying to convey? With regards to identity and such? With regards, yeah, with regards to the things we've talked about today of, like, more on the personal scale and, like, identity and development and coping skills, things like that, in, like, those areas rather than the big social areas and the small social areas. Yeah, I think that there's... um... This is going to be kind of a nebulous answer, I think, but I think that um, just trying to distill it down to one thing is nobody's one thing, and I mean that in two ways, in that you can't understand an individual by assuming that they're going to fit a single template. There's depth depth and multitudes to everyone that you need to understand if you're going to interact with them properly, and that you need to understand about yourself to interact with the world properly. But also, you're not alone in that situation, and that you have a support group, you have a family, whether it's a chosen family or a birth family or whatever the term is for that. Is there a different term? There's like chosen family and there's also natal family. Right. The the family you're born into. Yeah. So whether that's a natal family or a chosen family or whether it's just community that you're in, you can reach out for support and help and communication is important there. You see it an awful lot in the early seasons where Stephen is able to go to people in Beach City and ask questions. And sometimes they'll be like, why is this kid bothering me? But are usually able to provide some sort of insight for him. The point at which he's grown and learned who he is but still loses control is the point at which everyone thinks wow, that guy's got it figured out, you know, he saves the university, the hero, isn't he great? And nobody wants to try and help him at, at that point because they think he's he doesn't need their help. He's, he's Steven Universe. But when he eventually is able to reach out for that help, that's, well, when that help is presented to him, really. I mean, and he does reach out for help. He just doesn't do it in a direct or conscious way. Yeah. Um, And it's one of the things that I like so much about that end is that it's a cry for help. I mean, it's a classic cry for help that's seeking connection in a way that so many kids do, especially so many kids and even adults, especially ones who have dealt with various kinds of trauma and might not, or who anyone who's dealing with mental illness, like there's points at which you don't really know how to ask for help, but the distressing and distressed behaviors that you exhibit are a form of communication. They're a attempt to let other people know indirectly that something's wrong, so that they'll come in and help you. Anger, sadness, all of those things are ways of letting your community know that you're not okay. Uh, it, it And it's a form of communication, ultimately, which is what I think the main message is. I think that it's about the importance of healthy communication, not just with other people, but also with yourself. Not lying to yourself, being honest with yourself, even about the things that you don't like or that you don't understand. And not being afraid to look at those things and figure them out, even if you need someone else to help you with that. And also that often you will need other people to help you put even something about yourself into a context that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important message for kids to hear. And I think it's probably very often a really important message for parents of kids to hear. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there's some things with Greg talking about being a parent of a young child on his own but not really on his own, mm-hmm. um, is really helpful, probably. I say not as a parent. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a good answer for a, the big question. But I think the bigger question is, what fusion are you most upset we didn't see during the run of the series? And we've talked about them representing different relationships and the evolution of different people. We never see a fusion that includes parent. 
And we never see one that includes Lapis after Jasper. Yeah, there is one. But I think there's a very good reason we don't see a fusion after the one with Jasper, because that's a traumatic event. But I, I think that uh, a, a Stephen Paradox fusion would have been entertaining to see. Bismuth as well. Uh, I think there might be an argument for, like, something weird with the humans. Like, Stephen and Sarah Cream. Ha! <laughs> Stephen and Onion. Oh, wow. I think Stephen and Sarah Cream would just be like DJing in the middle of the party. Yeah. Like that's just what that scene would be. I agree with you that it is a real shame we don't get to see a fusion with Peridot, especially because she does consider it. Like she almost tries fusing with Garnet and she doesn't go through with it. She can't bring herself to do that, which I think is partly because of the time that she does it while she's friendly with the Crystal Gems. She's still not super close with them, but it's more of an indication of her letting go of the stigma. Of yeah. fusion, and that's a big deal for her character that she's even like considering it. And Garnet totally respects that she's not ready to do that, but also I think it does go a long way toward them forming a friendship that Garnet has that sort of proof of concept, I guess, or a proof of change of heart. Yeah. But that does show that Peridot doesn't feel that stigma anymore, and even if she didn't quite feel ready to go through such a transformative and intimate situation with somebody else that she no longer judges people for being involved in them in fusions. But we do see how deep and abiding her relationship with Lapis is. And I would speculate that Peridot would be open to fusing with Lapis. It's that Lapis has that trauma from having had the the um, toxic fusion with Jasper that, you know, it's not something Lapis is ready to do. Yeah. Or comfortable doing. But, and I don't, it's, it's kind of unclear as to the nature of their relationship like sometimes it seems like it's more platonic and sometimes it seems like it's more romantic but regardless they're very close and that's very clear yeah if lapis got to a point where she was no longer haunted by that experience and trusted herself i think is really what it is because in that experience i think she realized some of her darkest impulses and her her drive to dominate rather than be dominated is scary to her and i don't think she wants to I think she's worried about hurting someone else if she's in a fusion with them because that's what she did before so it makes sense but if she got to a point where she was no longer scared in that way then yeah. that that could potentially happen um yeah, that's although i wonder if maybe lapis might be more willing to fuse with steven because she might not be as afraid of dominating him because he is a diamond and because hmm. he has such a strong personality like maybe she wouldn't be worried about it in the same way that's an interesting thought i i suspect that like she just doesn't feel the need for it. I mean, apart from anything else, Lapis is really freaking strong on her own. She is, yeah. Like, her her water abilities are enough to hold monster Steven, who is a diamond, in place. Mm-hmm. So. For a moment, like, not for that long. She does say she can't hold him for long. But for a little while. Yeah. Which, just by herself, is yeah. impressive. But even, like, after doing that, knowing that she can't hold him for long might be reassuring to her in that context of if she wanted that kind of an intimate connection with him, yeah. that she might not be as worried about it because she knows she wouldn't be able to really hurt him. You That's know, fair. she might be able to trust, she might be able to let go a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I am sad that we don't see any fusions with Bismuth, though, because I'm sure that any fusion with Bismuth, any fusion with Bismuth would be hilarious. I feel like the 
end of Steven Universe future is working towards like setting up a Pearl and Bismuth fusion that doesn't quite happen. Like I think if they did another season of that, which I know they're not planning on doing, they have said they're not doing anymore. Hence we're doing the episode now. Mm -hmm. um, then I think we would see that fusion and Maybe. there might be a closer relationship there. Which is interesting because Pearl is so like precise and delicate with things and like dainty and Bismuth is so like robust and like very, I mean, she is also an artisan, but very much trends toward the brute strength type of end of things. Yeah. Just like build giant beautiful castles <laughs> with lots of pointed spires. Okay, well I think we'll wrap up for this week here. Um, we'll do our fun facts for Steven Universe next week. We'll be talking about some of the larger issues of the universe and the way that it's put together and some of the sort of history and culture around things. Um, rather than those specific characters. We'll obviously talk about some of those as well a little bit. Some of the larger messages around power and... Yeah. Colonialism and yeah. all that jazz. Um, class systems. Uh, and we'll probably add in a few extra things just talking about some of the characters that we didn't do as deep of a dive as we might have liked to on this episode. So in the meantime, you can find us on social media. You can find the links to that in the show notes below. You can also contact us at our email address unramblingspodcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you with your suggestions on topics corrections to things we said wrong because i'm sure we said something that will upset someone or you know any other comments or thoughts that you might have for us otherwise we'll see you next week thank you for listening to unramblings we hope that you will join us next week you know why pink diamond or rose quartz likes greg's music right why? Because it's rock music. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I appreciate that.